0: Usually I do a podcast with these guys named Rob and Peter.
1: (laughs) I have a dream. This nation will rise up,
2: live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created. equal.
3: We've had high level visits senators in the spring, a bipartisan way, and we will not allow them to isolate Taiwan.
1: I've
2: said it before and I'll say it again. Democracy simply doesn't work. Mr. Gorbachev tear down this
0: wall. It's the Ricochet Podcast with Peter Robinson and Rob Long, neither of which are here. Standing in is Stephen Hayward and Lucretia. I'm James Lilex, and we're going to be talking to Misha Austlin about China. So let's have ourselves a podcast. I can hear you! <laughs> Welcome everybody to the ricochet podcast number 604 join us why don't you at ricochet.com what's that you may ask well go there and find out you will you will think w- w- where was this years ago well it's 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 always been there, waiting for you to discover a place where the conversation is civil, sane, center-right, not so much on other issues, and really so on some... I mean, in other words, it's the place you've been looking for. Twitter? Nah. Facebook? Forget about it. The community you want is waiting for you at Ricochet. I'm James Lilix, and I've been happy to be with Ricochet since almost the very early days. Peter and Rob, the founders, aren't here because it's August. You know, silly season. They're out gallivanting about, peregrinating. Who knows? Uh, we'll have tales to come, but... But, but 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 who do we got this week? We've got Stephen Hayward and we have Lucretia back again. So welcome. Uh, welcome back to both of you. Uh, Stephen, this is your uh, I don't know how many times you've said in Lucretia, this is your second. So obviously, as the Beatles said at the end of their career, you passed the audition. How are you all doing <laughs> today? How are you all doing on this fine August day?
3: Um, very well. Thank you, James. And it's lovely to be here again. I'm I'm just very humbled that that I've been invited back and passed the audition.
0: Well, yeah. uh, you know, Stevens here so obviously the bar isn't exactly set that high. But <laughs> Steve, last time we were talking to you, you were you were doing some sort of uh, Tudor lord thing in a bar with the, uh, you know, with a with a tankard of ale and uh, you were you were off in Bonnie Scotland. Now you're back. Yeah. Um and, and as we said before, based on your very transitory experience in that country, could you give us a complete and total and and utterly authoritative rundown on how you think England is doing these days? And, oh, you know, 45 seconds go. Yeah, I <laughs> actually I'm still in London tonight. Uh, oh, I was up in Scotland
2: oh. a week ago. <laughs> yeah, it's I'm in London for a couple more days. Uh, I have no idea the the race for succeeding Boris Johnson has sort of cooled off for a bit. Now they've winded it down to the final two: uh, Liz Truss uh, and Rushi Sunak. I think that's his name. And it now goes to a vote early next month of the party members, which is dues paying members of the Tory Party, and they will actually make the final decision. That number is only like eighty or ninety thousand people. Uh, you, you can be a dues paying member of the party. Party and, and participate in the vote. And that's how they do it. Unusual way they do things here. And I, I think then the uh, members of the House have to ratify the choice, but that's what it comes down to. Uh, and uh, right now, I think Liz Truss is thought to be
0: have the upper hand, but we'll see. Are we likely to get somebody in the Thatcherian mode or are we getting somebody who's in the new sort of, uh, I I don't know if you want to call it the cool Britannia Tory part, but uh, somebody with a spine, somebody who's wobbly on issues such as, uh, the, because I know that England is having, like America is having a whole bunch of problems with energy prices and the rest of it. Mm. Um, are they likely to confront these things uh, going forward and have the the country behind them? Or are they going to limp along in a bifurcated state as uh, one fears the United States will for some time?
2: Yeah, I'm not very impressed with either one of the two finalists. I've taken in a couple of the TV debates during my long sojourn over here. Uh, there is some talk of trying to dial back their green energy nonsense, their net zero 2050 pledge. Uh, they so for the time being though they still have uh, on the books a policy to get rid of all gas powered heating and stoves in homes over the next 15 20 years Mm -hmm. that will require people to spend thousands of dollars in their homes to put in heat pumps and other crazy alternative things and the price of gas is soaring like it is because of uh, ukraine and other things Um, uh, and so uh, very gingerly the candidates say well we might have to dial that back we might have to delay it a bit none of them are coming out boldly and saying, this is nuts, we should get rid of it and start over and actually use energy that works.
0: Look, Richard, here in America, there's a lot of people who say the same thing, that we have to get rid of gas. As a matter of fact, I believe some states have actually mandated that new construction cannot use it. I have a gas stove, and I got it because I was certain that coming down the pike, they were going to forbid the things and force me to go to all electrical. Now, when you're cooking, gas, cooking with gas, as the phrase says, now you are, uh, is great for incremental control electricity i hate and the idea that my entire house would be powered by electricity the idea i mean the static electricity alone it would generate i think people are going to be electrocuting house pets and giving their small children you know frizzy hair (laughs) when they touch them but it used to be and this is interesting if you look back at the ads in the 60s there used to be this little medallion that they could put on people's homes the homes were all electrical, total electricity. And it would show this sort of family standing there. This this, this idealized unit of family, people who uh, you know who were surrounded by radiant lines. And you would put this medallion in your house to indicate that everything in your home was electrical. This was the future. It didn't get embraced by people as much as they perhaps wanted to, for whatever reason. But I think that's what they want here. They want to get rid of that nasty gas and then give us all electrical homes, all electrical cars, the power from which will come with come from, um, um,
3: um, the, sun, the, the, sun, sun, the sun, the sun, the, sun, the, the sun, wind, the for wind, For sure, all of it, all the, the time, 24 hours yes. a day. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes.
0: So how do you think that would fly here in America if they just said if, you know, from the top down, uh, you know, we're going to ban gas appliances and then we're also going to spend tons of money to retrofit everybody else's stuff. I wouldn't put it past them at all. It's probably buried in the Green New Deal.
3: I'm sure (laughs) it probably is, or or it should be from the point of view of those crazy greenies. Uh, Do you remember what the pushback was, though, on incandescent light bulbs? And they managed to do that. You know, Mm -hmm. you can barely buy an incandescent light bulb. What a stupid... Everybody looks ugly under anything but an incandescent light bulb. I mean, some people do no matter what, but everybody does. (laughs) Uh, You know, it's funny that Steve said uh, in England... Uh, they're maybe they're pushing back just a little bit, not enough to make a difference. But there was a piece in the New York Times this morning and it sort of began with this. All of Europe is fully committed to the idea that uh, climate change is an existential crisis and we have to do something about that. But unfortunately, in America, it's a partisan issue. Hmm. And of course, the partisans are Republicans don't believe in climate change and Democrats do. And it was just the this- stupidest sorry i shouldn't say that but my point is that no i think we have americans still willing to push back we even have to some extent a republican party willing to to push back on that they're actually united right now in opposition to the what is it called whip inflation now what is it called I, that's the only way <laughs> inflation reduction act which is really a climate change bill in disguise so yeah. I, don't, I don't know
2: Yeah, you know, it's one thing to tell people uh, it's a bit of a stretch to say, well, you should all drive electric cars or have access to electric cars to be precise the way Pete Putujudge put it. But I wonder what happens. uh, uh, You know, Europe's a little different uh, lower standards of living. And so they've had electric stoves for a long time, James. And you're right. Mm -hmm, I hate cooking on electric ranges. But what I think is when they actually say to the rich liberals of Bethesda, Maryland and Marin County, and Montecito that, oh, we have to remove those fancy wolf ranges in your kitchen and have you put in induction electric stoves. Mm-hmm. That's when the revolt's going to start, just like it has on crime, I think, right? You know, uh, if, if you think uh, the voters of San Francisco recalling a liberal district attorney because Crime Source uh, was uh, a man bites dog story, wait till they try to take away the
0: wolf's ranges from all those wealthy liberals in Bethesda. That will be that may be the line too far. All right, I'll yeah. put up with a low flush toilet because water is precious and there's only a fine item on. I will put up with a low flow shower head because I'm doing my part for everything and all the rest. I'll put up with getting rid of incandescent bulbs because, of course, we want to move to this more efficient future. But you will take my <laughs> Thermador. <laughs> from my cool. I mean, it, it, it's like when it, when it comes to them, you're right their luxury beliefs actually the luxury beliefs don't impinge on their lifestyle or their ability to do things until they do as we saw in new york and washington which is now complaining that Mm. why why are you bussing these these migrants here we're not like the border states we don't have the infrastructure for this which i just which you just have to love (laughs) you just absolutely have to love it Right. I mean being been... from
3: a border state, I absolutely do love it. Mm. Uh yeah. I I I attended a briefing yesterday on what we're gonna do about the fact that um I'm gonna just say it, illegal immigrants are infiltrating our um our military base uh over the mountains and uh exactly what the appropriate way of dealing with that is that doesn't cause massive unrest amongst the 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 left population here. What do you it's mean by infiltrating
0: the, the the military base? So
3: so it's interesting where I live on I'm very close to the Mexican border and I, and my backyard is a, 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 a butts up to the uh military installation. There's a range road behind my house that goes over the mountains. There's no there's there's sensors and that's about it that stop people and because <laughs> because military police are very limited in their ability to deal with illegal immigrants that come over uh, the mountains uh, into onto the um, onto the military base, it it's creates a lot of problems. Uh, they had a they had a, a, a young they the cartels go up to Phoenix. They get young men To agree to make a whole bunch of money to come down and grab um, illegals who have crossed the border on foot and take them to places up in Phoenix and whatnot, because they can't stay here where I live too much, too much law enforcement so that but the biggest problem in Arizona right now are all of these, you know, 17 year old kids driving off to get away from cops and uh causing major accidents because they're stupid kids right and they've got a a car full of illegal immigrants and so, so there's just all sorts of problems that that i'm sorry the rest of the world like you guys just d- don't even have a conception of unless you're re- living here and seeing what's happening are,
2: mm-hmm. are you near where the biden administration is filling in a gap in the, the wall that trump no. started or that's not, not,
3: i mean it, it's far it's almost a california steve and yuma oh, it's okay a, a, yeah um, and also in Texas. Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: So let's put a pin in that, as they say, when they want to completely drop the subject and move on. Uh, anybody <laughs> want to talk about the election? Anybody interested in the elections that just took place? Um, and Anybody follow them keenly and have any insights f- to draw from what happened?
2: Well, let's say I'm overseas. I'm only following it uh, on the Internet. Well, that's how most people do, I suppose. Um, I haven't done a balance sheet on this yet, but it looks like, once again, a sort of mixed record for Trump and his endorsements. He did well in Arizona with uh, Carrie Lake winning the governor's nomination and Blake Masters, the Senate nomination. Uh, I think he did well in some other areas. Uh, and but I don't know. Um, I haven't added up all the uh, all the wins and losses yet. Christian?
3: I think it, I, I think it's safe to say that he has done pretty well, um, certainly did well in Arizona. I think all of his major uh, uh, endorsements, won, including Blake Masters, Carrie Lake, Carrie Lake was probably much more truly uh, controversial than Blake Masters was. They really tried hard in the case of Blake Masters to, to drum up some some fake stories about him or to try to say that what he wrote on Facebook or Twitter 30 years ago as a teenager was somehow relevant today, you know, s- silly stuff like that. But Carrie Lake has got some, you know, she's has some issues with the more establishment Republicans that she's, um, very much of, of the belief that the 2020 election was stolen and it was still and that it was stolen in Arizona. And she's been very critical of even the efforts in Arizona to, uh, prove that the election was not stolen so that's interesting um i think that the fact that a number of impeachment trump impeachment republicans were uh primaried out of office so so i think that's a that's a good thing and and i could follow on really quickly if you're interested it's Mm -hmm. not important but uh, there's actually an arizona arizona state legislator who was primaried because he went and um uh, spoke at the January 6th uh, committee and uh, he got defeated soundly, probably not that important, but it's just interesting. Uh, Arizona is a very, very pro-Trump state. If mm-hmm. you look even at the difference between the uh, the vote counts for um, for, between Blake Masters and the Democrat, or between the Republican primary for Senate and the Democratic, between the Republican primary for governor, uh, there are a lot more Republicans voting than there are Democrats. Um, Arizona.
0: Take off your rainbow shades is the old song used to say. Of course, now that would mean that it was having a a, a pride rally. Uh, Mark Lindsay, I believe, did that song. I haven't been listening to a lot of Mark Lindsay lately. I have been listening to a lot of strange things. Podcasts include. I love to listen to podcasts. Crime podcast. There's one called uh, Anatomy of Murder, which is really intelligent and compassionate. And it's got great sound profiles to it, too. The way they use music in the background is great. So you need a good set of headphones when you're listening to something like This to appreciate all of the nuances. One of the reasons it's been great to listen to it is because I use my Raycon wireless earbuds when I do it. Raycons, everyday earbuds, but they look, they feel, and they sound better than ever. With optimized gel tips for the perfect in-ear fitting, you you want that, right? You want that perfect fit so they don't fall out. They don't. Uh, These earbuds are so comfortable and they just will not. Budge, trust me. And I use them when I'm, you know, walking quickly. I use them when I'm doing yard work and I'm bending up and I'm getting down. Granted, I don't use a lot of yard work, but these things have never popped out. The other ones, the white ones, those popped out. These don't. Raycons give you eight hours of playtime and a 32-hour battery life as well. They've the price just right. You get quality audio at a half price of the other premium audio brands. It's no wonder that Radio Raycons, everyday earbuds, have over 50. Thousand five star reviews. Now, there's a couple of attributes that I'll tell you about. You might not like these because you know for the price and what you get and the quality. There's customizable sound profiles. Now, this may sound really weird. But one of the things I've been listening to are the uh, the Kresky music collection records. Somebody found all the records that they used to play at Kresge stores in the 50s and 60s. They're mono, they're scratchy, they're weird, but I've got a customizable sound profile on my ray- Raycon set that, that brings out the best of these old recordings. It's lots of fun. But then, of course, you go to a podcast and you got to tap to that, and, but you have another sound profile that's great for voices. Of course, noise isolation, you like that when you want to tune out the world. You know, where I live, there's airplanes coming over. I don't want those interfering with what I'm listening to. And there's an awareness mode, too, because when I'm walking around downtown, sometimes I want to hear what's going on around me. I don't want to be isolated from the world. So it's got all that. Customizable sound profiles, noise isolation, awareness mode. It's great. Now, if you go to buyraycon.com slash ricochet today, you will get 15% off your Raycon order. That's buyraycon.com slash ricochet to score 15% off. Buy, B-U-Y, Raycon, Ricochet. And we thank Raycon for sponsoring this, the Ricochet podcast. And now we welcome to the podcast, Michael Oslin, or Misha, as he's called, Distinguished Research Fellow in Contemporary Asia at the Hoover Institution. He specializes in U.S. policy in Asia, geopolitical issues in the Indo-Pacific, and is the author of six books, including Asia's New Geopolitics, Essays on Reshaping the Indo-Pacific, and the best-selling The End of the Asian Century. Intriguing topics, and couldn't be more timely. Welcome, Misha. Let's start with the headlines here. Uh, Nancy Pelosi went to Taiwan. One of the magazines, I think Vice Online said, the GOP hates China so much they're praising Nancy Pelosi. Well, <laughs> well frankly, not I mean, put everything else aside, I thought it was good to go. And uh, the reaction from China has been fascinating. Tell us what you're picking up, what China domestically has done in response to uh, to Pelosi's visit.
1: Uh well James first thanks for having me on. Uh really great to be able to to join you guys and see my old friend Steve. Uh where I have to have to catch him online since I can never catch him in in, in person. He's always jetting around the world. So uh, it's great to be here. Um yeah, look, I I I think there's a lot of um hyperventilating going on about the trip um and and I think the Chinese know we're hyperventilating and so what they're doing is is uh, actually exacerbating it um you know you saw and there's actually a pretty uh stark divide even here you know in the country uh with uh, a lot of op-eds and and newspapers coming out saying that well you know of course china's the, the the biggest danger we face and of course we have to stand up to them but not now right so Pelosi shouldn't go, right? Because we're just going to make things worse. Uh, Or, you know, this is the worst time to go because Xi Jinping is gearing up for the 20th Party Congress, where he wants to get a third term as leader. Uh, And so don't, push him into a corner uh, right now. And uh, I I think the Chinese, uh, you know, they're just uh, abetting this, of course, by um, threatening that this is the end of the world. Uh, They got a huge uh, support, uh, supporting uh, play on that by uh, Joe Biden, President Biden, who openly said that he didn't think it was a good idea for her to go and quoted the military. So um, I I think there's a lot of hyperventilating. And the reality is it doesn't change much, if at all. Uh, What the Chinese don't like uh, of course, is any American official visiting the island? Um, and they really hate Nancy Pelosi. Um, she has, from the beginning of her career, been steadfastly uh, anti-Chinese, uh, anti the Communist Party in terms of its human rights abuses. Um, this is the you know the one thing that I think a lot of conservatives agree with her on is is you know the danger that China poses. And so, in some ways, I think China. It's not as much about the speaker. I mean, let's face it. You know how many Chinese. How many Americans even know what the Speaker of the House is anymore, right? It's it's about more about Pelosi. Um, Also, I'd say, look, the Chinese are sophisticated enough. They know she's not coming as an emissary of the administration. They they understand the division between uh, the executive and the legislative branch. They know that the, the White House doesn't control Congress. Meaning they know that she's not representing a change in U.S. policy towards Taiwan. She's going. She's speaking for herself. She doesn't even speak for the Congress. So they're, they're just playing on all of our divisions and all of our fears. And I, and I think they're doing it in part because in recent months and weeks, you've heard a return of the engagement crowd. Uh, they were they were put on the back foot for a number of years, certainly during the Trump administration, uh, even to be honest, the end of the Obama administration when people understood things weren't going the way we had hoped. Um, but now they, they've started coming back and they've started saying that, look, This relationship is too important uh, to to risk uh, messing up, to uh, to throw us into, you know, a a direct conflict. Look at all the problems we have with Russia. And so the Chinese, I think, are picking up on all of this. I just want to follow up on that, um, that it's too important for us.
0: So what has China done for us lately? To show that they are interested in this, in Mm. continuing and strengthening and uh, making more harmonious this relationship. What have they done for us lately, aside from releasing uh, a particular pathogen? Oh, I'm sorry, that's...
1: (laughs) utterly nothing. I mean, it's exactly to your point. I, I mean... The model, you know, that was established in the 1970s um, uh, with Kissinger and Brzezinski and, and others, uh, and which really shaped, you know, the first generation plus of, of the, uh, the China relationship was China's so big, it's so potentially important or actually important, right, as, as time went on, that we can't, again, we can't risk upsetting Uh, China, whether because we wanted to play it as the China card during the Cold War, or suddenly it became so critical to economies. So what the Chinese is, they understood this very well, and and they used this fear of of ours to say, look, the meta-relationship is so critical that you just have to let all the other stuff go, right? If we steal your intellectual property, let it go. If we threaten nations or or take territory in the South China Sea or wherever it is, let it go. Why? Because you can't risk the big game. And, and they froze us into place. It was a brilliant strategy. And, and we kept thinking in our you know, to be quite honest, I think admirably naive way, because it is admirable that we just think if you just keep talking a little bit more and you just keep explaining a little bit more, you're going to figure out a way to get along with people. We do that with everyone. It's not just the Chinese. We do it with every new leader. We did it with with Andropov when he came to power. We did it with Kim Jong-il when he came to power, right? Or Kim Jong-un. I mean, we've got this positive sense that we can just change the world if if they'll only listen a little bit more. But the Chinese really understood how to operationalize that against us. And so in response to your question, James, we've got nothing. I mean, yeah, we got cheaper yeah you know, we got cheaper uh, consumer goods right but at the cost of millions of jobs and a hollowing out of of our you know domestic economy especially in the heartland though to be fair it didn't start with china right it started with japan and korea and the four tigers and shipping uh shipping our um, our steel industries and our electronic industries and eventually our textile industries off to to other parts of the world but the scale of China is so massive that it really froze us from ever stating what are our interests? What's the due diligence we're doing to make sure that things are going in a way that benefits us? And the first one to do it really was Trump. The Chinese hated it. They wanted to wait him out. And I think the engagement crowd also wanted to wait him out. So part of what's happening with the Taiwan trip now is that they're, they're taking advantage uh, of this, this move back, towards uh, engagement and, and by the way just quickly you know you asked what did they actually do um, so they have launched a, a you know massive uh set of military exercises live fire exercises uh, ballistic missiles and rockets and helicopters and and a hundred uh, jet fighters and ships all around Taiwan um, and a lot of people are are freaking out about this first I, I don't think it changes anything we already knew that they could do this around Taiwan it wasn't, wasn't a secret, you know, of course they could do this. They just, they just hadn't done it. So on the one hand, it's not like they've actually stopped ships, which would be different, right? If they actually imposed a blockade, now you're talking Cuban missile crisis level, in, you know, problem that we have to figure out, okay, in reverse for us, right? Do we run the blockade or what do we do? Uh, but they haven't done that, right? Uh, it's a little bit like what we do after North Korea launches a missile, a lot of sound and fury, and it doesn't signify much. Um And what they're trying to do, of course, is intimidate people from making a trip like this again. They don't want others, you know, doing what Pelosi is doing, but they didn't want Pelosi doing it because it's been an ongoing development that Americans in increasing numbers and increasing levels of seniority are visiting Taiwan. Um, the last thing I'll say, by the way, is that if I'm in the U.S. military, I, I, I probably actually welcome this, what the Chinese are doing, because we're going to get an enormous amount of intelligence on it, right? We're going to see how well they can aim, how well they can fire, how well they operate, uh, how many things they they can put up in the air and on the sea. I think it's actually they're showing their their cards in a way they haven't for a long time. And so there's actually we should be thinking about the silver lining.
2: Well, all right, Misha. Sure Let first of all. Um, a whole bunch of questions. I will say that I was one of those conservatives who supported Pelosi's trip, but on the same condition I had for Nixon all those years ago, which was that she stay there and not come back. That was what I wanted Nixon <laughs> to do. <laughs> right. Um, let me uh, give a couple of the arguments you hear from your China watchers like Gordon Chang, um, you know Hal Brands, and um, Michael Beckley coming out with this new book in another week or so. And they're giving the demography is destiny argument, which is, uh, and Nick Eberstadt, our former colleague, used to talk about this a lot too. The China China is growing old fast, uh, that their opportunity, if they're going to reestablish the greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere, or whatever they're calling it this time, uh, is sooner rather than later, and that the risk of war is increasing. Uh, In other words, we're back to the same calculus the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Germans made in 1914. Do you buy that? Is that something uh, seriously driving your thinking, do you think? Or is is it more Chinese cultural forces behind it?
1: And I would note the Japanese in 1930, making the calculation. Well, Steve, without sounding like one of those authors who say, you know, I wrote this years ago. Let me just say I wrote this years ago. I had an entire chapter on demography in my book, The End of the Asian Century, talking precisely about this. And one of the... The Wall Street Journal columns that I wrote a number of years ago, I, I called something like the Xi Doctrine, right, X-I, Xi Jinping Doctrine, which was to make exactly this case that he uh, was making these moves because they didn't think time was on their side. Uh, so, uh, so I'm sympathetic because I've I've I've, I've written it and, and and I I believe in it, but we also have to understand, you know, scale, right? I mean, yes, a China that is beginning to top off. Uh, demographically and will most likely, from what we can tell, uh, begin a moderate decline around 2030, maybe 2035 or 40, um, is certainly of concern to the Chinese Communist Party. Um, But it is still a country that is going to dwarf every other nation in Asia, right? So it's not like you're suddenly going to have a Chinese that that can't field a military that is five times as large as as any other military. Um, The the real concern for the Communist Party is that um, uh, as they get older, before they get richer, of course, as you have kinship networks that really supported a lot of people with jobs and and financial support and things that the state didn't provide is those kinship networks Networks atrophy and, and shrink. Uh, then the state is going to be responsible for providing uh, things that that an aging population demands, and that's something that the state, even though it's a communist state, uh, is not used to doing. And of course, people who see that there's little future, who, who see that there's slowing economic growth, and of course, the macroeconomic picture is 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 fairly uh, grim for the Chinese. Um, they are concerned above all with domestic unrest. It's not what we do or the, the Japanese do. So there are a lot of reasons why demographics are are critical. Um, the question of do they have to now move today, very different from Japan in the 1930s, and I'll, I'll leave Europe aside because I don't know it, but you know, very different from Japan in the 1930s.
2: Well, you mentioned a minute ago, I'll do just one more, Lucretia, and then then you take over. Um, You mentioned a minute ago that we're going to learn a lot from this practice blockade going on here the last couple of days, you know, missile telemetry and certain other things. Um, I'll leave aside whether we can fully trust that they're showing us all their best stuff and not actually practicing deception. I think you always have to take that in mind with something like this. Uh, But whenever there's a perspective war, I always like to ask a very simple question. Who's going to win? Now, that's a big question, but let me try and get you uh, to give a a binary answer on that, if you can.
1: You mean uh, in terms of a war over Taiwan? Yeah well Steve not to say well, that especially if it, we're involved
2: especially if we're involved in it which it sounds like we would be
1: not to say that I've written it but um uh, and I'll be <laughs> happy to send it to you guys so I, I wrote a very long uh 2025 war scenario in in the last book it was the last chapter of uh, my book being uh Asia's new geopolitics I called it the sino-us littoral war of 2025 that starts with accident you know things that we've already seen two planes colliding or ships colliding uh and the short answer is uh we don't Win, uh, but we also don't entirely lose. What what I think you would see uh, is assuming this is a big assumption. Assuming that neither side wants the war, and that's that's where the debate is going today is the presumption that China wants a war, which I don't fully buy. That they want a war over Taiwan, that I don't fully buy. But assuming that neither side wants a war, this is not Pearl Harbor 1941, but a war erupts for lots of different reasons, uh, including lack of trust and so on. Um, The question is, how far does each side want to go, right? Because very quickly... Uh, you're forced into considering nuclear responses because of of, uh, limitations, mostly for us, but also for the Chinese. And then the question of striking homelands, because, you know, if you want to take out rocket launchers, and you got to strike the Chinese homeland, and then do they strike the American homeland? So my my answer is, is that you would wind up most likely with a negotiated settlement, but we would lose enormous amounts. We would basically have a rump alliance system left over. We'd beat pushed mostly to Japan and surrendering most of our other freedom uh, in the region. But and I think historically this this shows up often, that doesn't mean that the Chinese suddenly have a, a, their own version of a greater uh, East Asia co-prosperity sphere. Instead, they're going to have a lot of countries that are unhappy to be under the thumb of China, and they're going to have very restless subject populations that they have to deal with. So it's not exactly a win for them. And in fact, it, it settles into a real Cold War in Asia. That's what I think would happen.
3: So, Misha, hi. Hi. Good morning. Um, I wasn't one of those uh, conservatives that were cheering Nancy Pelosi on in all of this. I mean, once she made the point that she was going, it it was done, of course. But my concern is not so much whether or not the Chinese and their... um, <clears throat> their declining state consider this to be the best time to go after Taiwan. My concern is that this is the best time to go after Taiwan if you're not wor- if you don't want to be worried about an American response because America is not in a position to respond. We are at the lowest level of uh, troops, in our history lower than before world war II, on and on and on recruiting is abysmal retention is abysmal across the military it's not getting any better we i'm not a fan of the conflict in in ukraine uh i think that was misguided from the beginning we with the, another story but that has also really seriously am, uh, hampered our ability to respond to some kind of Indo-Pacific uh, conflict. I mean, it just, the whole thing just scared me with Nancy Pelosi. Uh, fortunately, it didn't work out as badly as I thought it might. The Chinese response was was pretty measured, all things considered. But already, you know, well, we're not going to try our uh, do our intercontinental ballistic test now because we don't want tensions to get higher. I think we're just showing weakness across the board to the Chinese.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with that. I also don't think that the Chinese... Calculus is. Uh, I think we are a factor in the Chinese calculus, but not the main factor. I think they've they've pretty much decided we would not enter uh, in force with with troops. Now that may be a miscalculation, um, but in terms of the unwillingness of the United States to engage in what would be, uh, you know, the biggest war certainly since 1945 uh, is is something that they believe we're going to err on the side uh, of caution and we would uh as you know just even with small things like the the minuteman 3 test you know we will do everything we can to signal that we want to tamp down uh the crisis and that we do we you know we want all sides to act responsibly whatever whatever the diplomatic term is that we use so mm-hmm.
3: quick just I, I don't want to interrupt i just want to ask, does why would we expect the chinese to act differently to that kind of um, laid-back posture, shall we call it, than than Russia did, than than Putin did? Because it's,
1: yeah, that's a good question, Uh, and it's because it's really hard to invade Taiwan. Um, What they're showing right now with these military activities is that you can uh, blockade it, and they could certainly send out, they have a lot of ships that they could send out to, to do a physical blockade or quarantine uh, of the island. Uh, but an amphibious invasion is is very hard. And um, it's, it, it's not something they have, first of all, any practice with. And so we have, you know, at this point in time, probably the most practiced and experienced military because of two decades of, of warfare. Uh, and yet we still botch missions and make mistakes all the time and the chinese have never done anything like this number so number one it's not it's not all that easy um getting to where they need to go uh once they're on the island is not easy it's a very mountainous island i mean they have all sorts of logistical problems and 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 tactical uh problems and they're going to have um i don't know if they're going to have the full 23 million taiwanese against them but they're going to have a substantial number of Taiwanese who can do guerrilla warfare and, and lots of different things that is going to make it much more difficult for them. And for the party, this is really existential. If you launch a war for that Island and you wind up in a Ukraine type situation, now you 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 start looking away from the island and over to your west and over to your south and over to your north because you're really worried about what a lot of the Chinese imperial subject peoples like the Uyghurs uh, or the, uh, the the Inner Mongolians uh, or um, those in in breakaway potentially breakaway areas like hong kong who really want to get their freedoms back what they're going to try to do and so again that the risk is at home that doesn't mean that it's not a red line for them it really is i mean taiwan is a red line uh but at the same time i think um the the idea that it would be a cakewalk for them is just really not something that that they can that they can calculate what they want of course is to make us so afraid of getting involved that we stay out of it the Japanese stay out of it. That's one reason they're really worried, is the what, what's been coming out of Japan and what um, former Prime Minister Abe, who was you know, tragically assassinated last month, was saying about the U.S. has to defend Taiwan. And Taiwan is essentially Japan's front line of defense. This, this to them, changes the ballgame. So what they're trying to do is, is ratchet up the intimidation. So we would stay out and make it easier for them to figure out how do they just keep control of this island without the risk of having to send a, a full invasion. force.
3: Should we be doing things like sending special forces to help uh, the the Taiwanese engage in kind of guerrilla homeland warfare against a a Chinese invasion? Should we be doing things... That or are we too afraid to do those kinds of things that might actually deter China from uh considering a, a, an actual invasion and amphibious invasion of Taiwan? Yeah, I think
1: we should be doing everything we can. We should be doing it quietly. Um I you know for years people have talked, it's not a new thing though, it's come up again recently, a porcupine strategy. You want to raise the risks to China as much as you can. Uh we should be, yeah, you know, we shouldn't be sending our, our special forces over there. We should have their special forces come to us um quietly. We shouldn't know about it uh, because we don't have those formal military to military ties yet but we should be doing that we should be having our allies who who are willing and there's not that many but those who are willing to do this and i would say the japanese are there um working uh with them we should be doing training um the Taiwanese have to make a lot of hard decisions. Though they, they they they've had a plan for years to move to a volunteer force as opposed to conscription, which is not a good idea. Um, they should be uh, thinking about how you buy porcupine type weapons as opposed to tanks, which will just get destroyed on the on the beachfront. You know they have to do their job too, and they have to train better. Um, they they have to be more prepared. But but yeah, we should be doing everything we can uh, and doing it quietly enough that um, uh, it it makes a material difference. But but it doesn't become a diplomatic issue until until we decide we need it to be. All right, Misha, we've, um,
2: I've got uh, one more serious question. I've got many, but I'm going to give you one because we're short of time. Uh, and then a quick personal question at the very end. Um, I, Lucretia asked the question I did have in my mind, which is what should be done? What should we be doing? Uh, the question I have, and the problem is, is that, you know, you, you have a whole book written on this, I'm sure, somewhere that I haven't read. I want to get in the mind of the Chinese a little bit. And here's what's behind that premise. You know, people asked me months ago, why in the world did Putin want to invade Ukraine? What's this all about? It's you know, the sanctions are ruinous to the Russian economy. And I keep coming back to you cannot underestimate the role of megalomania and people like Putin in dictators and authoritarian governments, that this is a lesson of hundreds of years, I think. Uh, and so there are these estimates that if you had a full-blown war between us and China, uh, at whatever degree of intensity, it would be a 5 to 10% hit to U.S. GDP. It's a lot larger than most recessions. Uh, a 25 to 35% hit to the Chinese economy obviously catastrophic, could set off a worldwide depression. And so you think, well, would they want to get rich? Why would they do such a thing? And I keep saying, maybe they have the same kind of megalomania that someone like Putin has. So uh, again, with only a couple minutes for you to answer, uh, is China different? Is it alike? I mean, could they have the same kind of megalomania we've seen in tyrants throughout history and make them go for it against all the logic and forces that would make you say they shouldn't?
1: Well, you know, usually, Steve, you know better than I do, um, you know, megalomania is is really one person who controls an entire system and is, is therefore able to push through that system their, you know, warped and twisted desires. Um,
0: I thought you were referring to Steve himself as an example of <laughs> megalomania <laughs> and his position at Powerline. Uh, there's there's more to this
1: story, I guess. In, 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 far be it for me to, you know, to pull back the whole curtain. But yes, um, so. Uh, the, the. The way that the Chinese after Mao set up the system was that they wouldn't ever have to face megalomania again, which they did under Mao. And so you had a a largely and certainly over time until 2012 evolving uh set of of, of collegial, you know, collegial leadership, right? I mean, you had a, a a group. Uh and that's what we're moving away from under Xi Jinping over the past decade. That's why the 20th Party Congress this fall, which is just gonna, you know uh ratify something that's baked in the cake, which is his continuing hold on power, is so uh important because we don't know if we're moving towards a system of megalomania in China. I I tend to think it's a, it's still a little bit harder to do that. Uh you know, Xi Jinping does not control China the way that Putin controls Russia, let alone the way Mao or Stalin controlled their societies or the Kim's. So I, I think I think it's harder. What makes it easier in terms of let's say a societal megalomania is that no matter who you talk to the most liberal of Chinese in uh, in China in the People's Republic, they all believe Taiwan is part of China so the megalomania can actually come into play in, in a sort of narrower way towards Taiwan because it doesn't you could talk about people who are like we need a constitution, we need elections. Oh, Taiwan? No, that's part of China. So yeah. they, you know, that is what sort of skews the whole situation is that it's it's not saying there can be a sort of rational calculation uh, about Taiwan. And and I would say in some ways the Taiwanese are split. You know, older Taiwanese are more uh, feel more connected to the mainland and younger Taiwanese don't. They feel that they are Taiwanese, not Chinese. Um, and so over time, that is also something that the Chinese face is. Yeah. You know, how, how do you control a, a society that that unlike 30 years ago really does feel completely separate does that complicate right. it or not
2: well the yeah. megalomania
0: oh. aspect may come into it i'm sorry steve you had one more or well i was just gonna a quick personal question misha
2: you, you know for all those years we worked down the hall from each other and we talk in the lunchroom i never thought to ask how did you come to be called misha how did oh. you get that nickname
1: yeah it's, it's not because i'm russian uh, nor is it a um You know, nor is it a a pilot's nickname. Uh, It's from the good old (laughs) days of the Cold War. Uh, Yeah, I wish it were. You know, I wish it were my call sign, but it's not. Um, It's. Uh I I was coming up at the end of the Cold War. I was doing Russian studies. I got my master's Uh in Russian studies in 1991. Uh, oh, in Soviet a great studies. exactly. <laughs> so they're handing me my diploma. The flag yeah. is coming down. My dad's looking at me saying, now what? Um, so it's just got tagged onto me as Misha back in the days when we knew who our enemies were. Things were clear. It was such an easier time to to be in D.C. Uh, but now, uh, <laughs> yeah, now everyone thinks I'm, you know, one of those one of those, um, you know, oligarchic uh, refugees from from Putin's Russia. And sadly, <laughs> uh, you know, neither a refugee nor an oligarch. Yeah, you don't have one of those big super yachts. I'm disappointed. I just keep it hidden very well. I, I'm like John Kerry. You know, I'm in Maryland, but I park it off, you know, in another coast where I don't have to pay taxes. <laughs> right. Well, thanks, Misha. This has been really fun. Hey, guys, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, It does indeed. All right. We hope to have you
0: on soon between uh, your Russian expertise and your Asian expertise. Uh Anytime. You are the guy, the, the guy to go to on just about any single day. So we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Bye. James. Um, and before we go on, though, I should notice here that Stephen Hayward, who is a uh, a, a guest host, right? That's that's how you describe yourself, Stephen, as a guest.
2: E- yes, host? yes. the megalomaniac one though, but so right. Sure.
0: took control of the conversation and concluded it on his own. <laughs> this is something a guest host. Has never actually done before, and we're sort of scrambling here to find out the protocols about what the uh, what the consequences should be. That's yeah. That's... But
2: James, I have gotten over taking the Rob Long role of trying to interrupt your segues. I've, I've given up that bad habit.
0: Right. Well, even Rob and Peter <laughs> knew so much as to placate me with the fiction that I was in some some realm of control here. So so we're going to have that. I was uh, actually I don't care what I wanted to talk to you <laughs> about, though. Think about it. And, and let me bounce this off. You two guys, because I, I find this, the whole China subject to be endlessly fascinating is that. This whole wolf warrior diplomacy thing that we've seen in the last few years, this aggressive posture, which strikes us over here as completely unnecessary. It's like you can get a lot of what you want without being such a jerk about it. I mean, you could have Hong Kong, and if you behaved about it, then it would have faded from public consciousness. And so we pay attention to you. Taiwan would probably eventually exceed, perhaps, if you'd not been who you seem to be, this aggressive, angry barking, there will be consequences posture. So given all the rhetoric that we saw from Xi and the rest of them before Pelosi's visit, did he not lose an extraordinary amount of face by her coming and going and the Chinese doing nothing about it? Well, they shot a few things off, but they did nothing about it.
2: Yeah, so I I, I, do. <clears throat> go ahead. ahead you go first. You
0: want me to go first? I was just oh, going to say, I wonder. No, I get to say who goes first, Steve. Okay. <laughs> go, just take it over. Do the spots. That's it. <laughs> Here's go.
3: Here's I'm, show. I'm used to it. You just have to talk <laughs> over him, James. That's what works for me. Drives people crazy, unless they like me. But anyway, I was just going to say, I. you know, the Chinese are much, much better at manipulating their public pronouncements in ways that uh, our our at least our current set of diplomats like Wink and blink and Nod um, can't seem to do. I mean, they'll, they'll just come out and say, look, our, look how generous we are after you insulted us and did all of these things and they'll get away with it. That's sort of my um, continuously sarcastic and uh, negative view of of things. Uh, mostly, mostly a result of our ineptitude and a little bit less the result of, of Chinese cleverness, although it is that too. That's what I would say, Steve.
1: Yeah, I
2: think um, uh, I think you need to go back about three years in the historical tape and take in the fact that China decided to rubbish their agreement with Great Britain on the autonomy of Hong Kong, and you know they went in and, and essentially they violated that whole agreement. And if I'm over in Taiwan watching this, I think it hardens my attitude if I'm Taiwanese, that we're going to be able to uh, have an entente with China where we unify more formally. I think that increased their inclinations to resist uh, mainland China's blandishments. The the basic social uh, contract in China for quite a while now to its rising middle class and upper classes has been pretty simple, which is we give you a good life and you shut up. Uh, and I've met a few senior Chinese business people, uh, very well paid, running international companies, traveling back and forth between the U.S. and China. And you cannot get them to say a single word about politics in China because uh, uh, that's how thoroughly, uh, as Lucretia puts it, um, uh, they've intimidated their own population. There's a lot of economic integration between Taiwan and the mainland. Um just to give one example I have to know a little bit about. Starbucks China, uh, the territory includes both Taiwan and China. They don't separate them as territories like you would you know New York and Florida or something in this country. Uh, uh, and so international pressures are trying to push them together too. Uh, so I don't know, I think it could all come apart. Um, and I, you know, I listen to Misha, I listen to Nick Eberstadt and others, and I don't know what to make of it all, unfortunately.
0: Mm-hmm. No. Well we'll find out. I would have loved to have been okay. at the airport before Pelosi was leaving and she stops and walks away and just goes over to the little kiosk and fills out some life insurance forms and puts you know, puts that <laughs> in the old airport life insurance thing. Uh, she's smart that way you know she probably has got a lot of life insurance a lot of insurance given the you know, the vineyards and all the rest of it and hey how about you you pay hundreds of dollars every year to protect your home your car we do this to protect our phones i got insurance on my phone but many of us aren't taking steps to protect our family's finances mortgage payments private student loans other types of debt don't just go poof if something happens to you. No. A life insurance policy can provide your loved ones with a financial cushion they can use to cover those costs. And it can provide you with peace of mind that even in a worst case scenario, they'll be okay. They'll be protected. Policy genius. It's an insurance marketplace that makes it easy to compare quotes from top companies like AIG and Prudential in one place and find your lowest price on life insurance. You could save 50% or more on life insurance by comparing quotes with Policy Genius. Options start at just $17 a month for a half million dollars worth of coverage. Just click on the link, description here, you know, if you're looking at the Ricochet page, or just head over to policygenius.com to get personalized quotes in minutes and find the right policy for your needs. The licensed agents at Policy Genius work for you, not for the insurance companies. They're on hand through the entire process to help you understand your options so you can make decisions with confidence. No extra fees. Your information stays private. And Policy Genius has options that offer coverage in as little as a week and avoid unnecessary medical exams. So head to PolicyGenius.com now to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. And you will be relieved when you do this, because you'll know that your family has got protection. PolicyGenius.com. Great prices, great insurance, and that sense of relief. And we thank PolicyGenius for sponsoring this, The Ricochet Podcast. I believe uh Stephen you had a you had a question you wanted to ask here. we're, we're just I love the fact that we're just just throwing out, you know, what we're doing here in the chat box and the Slack and the rest of it. Usually, with Peter and Rob, it's this finely tuned, well oiled machine. I mean, you don't know how oily Rob can be. Uh, so, you know, for people to see the sausage being made like this is just uh, stuffed into the case, <laughs> extraordinary. <laughs> no, no it's Lucretia who has the question for you, James. Not oh, Lucrecia. Oh, I see. I'm sorry. Actually,
3: it's a li- so it's a little bit um, <clears throat> uh, old and stale now. I just actually wanted to ask you about your question about china how much you thought that china's communist ideology actually played a role in that if they could not be anything but um mean and rude and uh (laughs) demanding and (laughs) all those other dictatorial things i mean is it possible for a communist regime uh on the order of uh, china to to be kind to its uh, uh, client states. I don't know. I, you know,
0: I I don't know either. The thing of it is, is, you know, as everybody will tell you, well, real communism has never been tried. And we have different flavors in all of its iterations throughout the last hundred years. And looking at the Chinese government and the Chinese economy and calling it communist seems absurd. I mean, and the idea that they have a political structure, which indeed is nominally communist, I guess. But when you consider that the whole point of communism seems to be the antithesis of the consumer economy that they've created... I you know I don't think the communist that the, the aggressiveness comes from communism. I think it comes from from a, a, a resurgent nationalism that is you know lurks in nearly every single culture except perhaps you know some mythical little place on earth where everybody is holding hands and dancing around the maple. So I don't know. I don't think it's that. I think it's just that the, it's 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 the character that has that has been encouraged by Xi, and it's fun now because you have the ultranationalists grumbling saying if Putin ran this country we would already have have gone to war with Taiwan. Eh, Well, we'll see. Here's the thing, though, folks. What you want to do is you want to look at your calendar in the future and say, what's going to happen? I don't know what's going to happen in the future. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. In September, you're going to be in Austin. Hey, it's possible. Ricochet is going to be a media partner with the Texas Tribune Festival. It's taking place September 22nd to 24th in downtown Austin. Flood downtown Austin. Ricochet people. Change the political demographics, if only for a couple of days. Full program. It's going to be announced next Tuesday soon. But we do know that David Drucker, who hosts the In Trump Shadow podcast, which is available here at Ricochet, uh, will be doing interviews with Governor Glenn Youngkin of Virginia and Governor Asia Hutchinson of Arkansas. So this is going to be fun. If you'd like to attend the event yourself, and why wouldn't you, use our special discount code for a one-time 15% off discount on one general admission ticket? Go to the tribfest.org, T-R-I-B-F-E-N. <clears throat> Yeah, it'd be great if I could spell T-R-I-B-F-E-S-T.org and enter the uh, code ricochet15 in the promo code box at the bottom of the page. Click apply and uh, money's off and we hope to see you there. A lot of meetups being planned as well, too. See, that's the thing about Ricochet. Unlike the rest of these places, you go and you have your preconceptions reconfirmed and all the rest of it. We have debate, we have lively things, and we meet in what we used to call meet space. Hate the word, glad it's dead, but in real life, in other words, a couple are set later for this month. Brian Stevens hosting one in Atlanta over the weekend on the 19th. Michael Collins is hoping to get the UK members together in Dublin, Ireland on the 26th. That's fantastic. I just love it. I'd love to be at all of them. More meetups coming down the pike in various stages of planning for Northern California, Huntsville, Alabama, New Orleans. And if none of these are close to you, join Ricochet, give us a place and time, and have the Ricochet friends come to you. Wouldn't that be cool? I think that'd be cool. So that's uh, what Rob would have said if he's here, and he's not, but I am. Uh, and as long as we got you guys here, uh, let's ask the perennial question, what's the matter with Kansas? Now, a lot of people are <laughs> disappointed that Kansas did what it did. Other people, you know, somebody was uh, saying on Twitter, it's like this. Here's the conservative reaction. Uh, we're sorry that it they, they voted as they did, as they decided as they did in the abortion issue, but that was that was really the whole point of what the supreme court did right
3: i i I would agree with that but i would also i've been thinking of this as kansas bloody kansas very similar to what actually happened in the 1850s where um a lot of outside influence ended up uh with the Lecompton Constitution, we don't go into all the details of it, but a lot of outside influence from pro-slavery advocates in Kansas produced a pro-slavery constitution that did not accurately reflect, I think, the views of the people at the time in Kansas. And I think that there's some truth to that today. Does it matter? Probably not really. But let's not make the huge assumption that Kansas, the voting population of Kansas made a Really reflective uh, choice about what what they were voting on because it, the, the whole campaign there was just so vile and so much disinformation that um, I wasn't surprised it came out that way.
2: Yeah, you know, yeah. There's a lot of outside money was spent on it, which most of the media accounts glosses over if they mention it at all. Uh, you know, I as a as a student of public opinion surveys, I don't know another issue. Uh, where the ordering of the questions and the the way the questions are styled can so change the outcome. Uh, But I think if the initiative uh, or the referendum that Kansas voters had been presented with was Should there be restrictions on abortion after 15 weeks, like the Mississippi law, or 20 weeks? I'll bet the outcome would have been different. This got presented and spun out uh, as, oh, uh, this is going to outlaw all abortions under any circumstances, which it wasn't that. It was just to try and roll back. Essentially, it was trying to replicate on the state level what Justice Alito and the Supreme Court did on the federal level. Uh, And so, you know, uh, I've listened to Peter talk about this issue, saying we're now in the domain of where neighbors have to persuade neighbors. And the first time out of the box, um, I think we have a, a you know set of circumstances that uh, the the left and the media, but I repeat myself, are rushing to say shows that this was a crazy thing for the Supreme Court to have done. And I think I'm with Lucretia. I think that reading is completely wrong.
0: Hmm. One last question then before we go. There was uh, some interesting news down in Florida where uh, – uh-huh. <laughs> yes, Ron DeSantis, Ron DeSantis suspended a Florida prosecutor. I mean, the prosecutor said, I'm not going to, I will not, I will not enforce these laws. Okay. All right. Fine. You're gone. Uh, DeSantis said state attorneys have a duty to prosecute crimes as defined in Florida law, not to pick and choose which laws to enforce based on your personal agenda. He said, it is my duty to hold Florida's elected officials to the highest standards for the people of Florida. Well, uh, the guy suspended, shot back saying it's a stunt, right? Quote, it's illegal overreach that continues a dangerous pattern by Ron DeSantis of using his office to further his own political ambition. It spits in the face of the voters of Hillsborough County who have twice elected me to serve them, not Ron DeSantis. Now, the them would seem to be the law. But no, I guess it's the, the, the voters. Uh, so was this a, uh, a another example of the fascistic authoritarianism we could expect under President DeSantis? Or is this somebody who's saying, no, uh, we don't get to pick and choose the laws. These are the laws. Do your job. Lucretia?
3: Well, I think you... Actually, the the point is, it's not illegal for what Ron DeSantis did. He has the uh, the the duty under Florida law, under the Florida Constitution, to remove uh, elected public officials, state of uh, state officials that. Uh, do not do their duty. Whether that's f- refusing to enforce the law, there's a whole lot of different things. So he acted perfectly legally. Of course, these things aren't, aren't legal questions; they're political questions. And I think, quite frankly, Mister uh, Mister Warren's going to lose this battle. I don't think that his uh, uh, constituents are probably likely to bring him back. He's one of those really despicable people that push so hard on the um, on the COVID nonsense. And I th- I, I think he's going to lose. Uh, lose the battle and lose the war.
2: Now, now, how did you put it, James? Is this the kind of authoritarian dictatorial government (laughs) we can expect from DeSantis? (laughs) Uh,
0: Fascist authoritarian, you're right, something like that. Yeah, well, I certainly hope so. (laughs) That's my
2: answer to the whole thing. Uh, There's two, the subtext here is partly what's going on in other states. So we we recalled in San Francisco, Chesa Boudin, the governor of New York has the same power to remove prosecutors. And they're having this big fight in New York among Democrats, uh, because the story was out this week that um, the and the New York Post reported this, of course, that a very small number of criminals, like 30 to 50, something like that, committed hundreds and hundreds of crimes after being re- uh, arrested repeatedly and released within hours. Uh, and the governor of New York, or Kathy Hochul or whatever her name is. Uh, refuses to exercise the same prerogatives the governor DeSantis has exercised. And so it gives us, again, a nice contrast between New York and Florida, between leftist governance and conservative governance. And I think I
0: know who's going to win that with the American people. Mm-hmm. Particularly in a time of rising crime, which we're told, yeah. of course, has its 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 reasons, its antecedents, its uh, in, in things that we have to address first. We can't really do anything about crime without doing something about these structural reasons. And since, of course, the structural reasons can never be completely fixed and require a great deal of state intervention mm-hmm. to even do anything, that's what they're going to push for. Uh, Great in peaceable times. Doesn't work so well when you have cities uh, that have gone through what cities have gone through in the last two years. I mean, here in Minneapolis, in the last week, a place I just walk by every day, one kid shot another at a a transit platform. And, of course, there was that lovely little brouhaha at the Mall of America where there was a shooting in a shoe store, uh, which led to the place being locked down, people streaming out and screaming. And, of course, Twitter... Responding to the events saying, well, this is what the GOP wants. They want to sell guns to everybody so that everybody shoots each other in the uh in, in the shopping malls. No, no, actually, what we want is a return to a culture where that sort of nonsense is 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 that, that 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 behavior that seems incapable of apprehending consequences in the future and the effect of all of this on society, where that's not the norm, where that is actually discouraged and Punished, and everyone knows that it's discouraged, and everyone knows that it's punished. It seems obvious. To...
3: James, may yeah. I ask you a question? I grew Go. up in Iowa, uh-huh. um, and so a trip to Minneapolis, where I had relatives, was, of course, a trip to the big city. Me too. But <laughs> I mean, I grew up. I, in F- I
0: grew up in North Dakota. Same thing.
3: Okay, so, but what I don't remember, and of course I'm old, is any any kind of hint that minneapolis was an unsafe crime-ridden city it just seemed like another midwestern city when did all that change have you lived there most of your life uh,
0: i've lived here since 1976 it changed okay. uh, most in the 90s uh, when there was a big gang war and we got the reputation of murderopolis and all of a sudden people stopped feeling that sort of basic safety everywhere uh because a lot of the of the internecine squabbles spilled out into other parts of the city and cops started getting shot, and uh, there was a galvanic change in the, in, the, in the way people identified the city. Then, as happened, everything got better and uh, we flourished and downtown flourished and we have all kinds with tens of thousands of people living downtown now and all these wonderful new apartments that have sprouted by the river it's beautiful we have a Robert Graves design, not Graves design, uh, we have a beautiful designed uh, you know t- tower on the river that's just gorgeous commanding views but unfortunately what you have also is the diminution of the police's ability to do anything about the disorder so you have in downtowns on weekends uh, you have these spiky energetic elements that shall we say enter in and you have a lot of shootings and you got a lot of people as we saw in the fourth driving around with rocket launchers shooting wisconsin-style fireworks at people's houses and you had just the sense of disorder has permeated every single aspect of this city where i live we are pretty much immune to it except that I hear gunfire, except that there was a woman got carjacked at gunpoint a block from my house last year, except that I hear the people racing their mad cars up and down the street, 50, 60 miles an hour, residential neighborhoods all the time. Everybody feels it. Everybody's got that certain little tingly vibe. Now, are we a hellscape that burns every night? Is Laura Ingraham's description of us correct? No, we're not. But it's changed, and everybody knows it's changed, and everybody's waiting, waiting, waiting for something to happen that says it's not going. It's going to go back to where it was before, where we felt safe, where we didn't hang our collective, na- you know, city heads in shame because a guy who came here for a wedding caught a stray bullet that somebody was firing off on the bridge, and he's, you know, in a coma in the hospital for six months. It, it, yes, it changed, and then it got better, then it changed again. So we're thinking, we're thinking. We're hoping, we're looking for the ways in which it'll go back to what it was before because it is a beautiful place and I love it and it's full of great people. Uh Stephen, you know, you you grab the reins out of my hand before you want to uh you want to do it again and close the show or okay, can I close the podcast? Is <laughs> no, that a, James, is you said okay. But I can't with possibly. You? <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Well, if Stephen had closed the podcast, he would have told you that it was brought to you by Raycon and by Policy Genius. And you can support them f- for supporting us and you can join Ricochet today, as I'm sure Stephen would tell you as well. And if uh, Lucretia was closing the podcast, she would tell you to leave a minute, uh, take a minute. Not leave a minute, would it take a minute, or leave a minute? What is this, a jar of uh, you know, by the cash register, take a minute to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. The reviews allow new listeners to discover us, as we've been saying, for 604 episodes, and that keeps the show going. Well, I know it'll be here on number 605. Will Rob be back? Will Peter be back? Will, will, will Stephen do something to either of them to make sure that he's back? Uh, you know, I don't know. I can't, I don't think Lucrecia is going to do anything skullduggery-wise. She's just not that sort. But, you know, who knows what lessons in continental intrigue he's, Stephen's been absorbing over there in Blighty. So uh, maybe we'll see you both next week. I don't know. Maybe I'll be taken out by some wolf warrior, uh, you know, assassin. It's an uncertain world, although we do know for certain. That It's been great to have you guys, and we'll see everyone in the comments at Ricochet 4.0. Bye. Thanks, James.
3: Thanks, James. Bye.
0: Ricochet.
2: Join the conversation.